Uh, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, welcome to the old theatre of the London School of Economics. Uh, my name is Simon Davies. I'm the director of Future Britain here at the LSE. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you and to just say a few words before we kick off with uh, the show. Um, first, I have to uh, uh, let you know that there have been some fairly uh, extraordinary changes to the order of business in Parliament in the last 12 hours. Uh, you may know the, uh, um, the, the, there's been a lot of legislative activity. Uh, the corporate manslaughter bill uh, has been kicked back to ping-pong back from the Lords for the fifth time last night. As a consequence, uh, we, uh, uh, unfortunately, Jack Straw is unable to be with us. He has, uh, he's required on the floor of the House. Um, we've been very fortunate, though, and this has changed three times in the last two hours, but we're back to the same running order that we had uh, originally. Um, the Minister, Michael Wills, is able to hear, uh, be here to represent Jack Straw, um, and we have uh, from the Liberal Democrats, Nick Clegg, and uh, uh, Dominic Grieve, the Shadow Attorney General, is en route now after a last-minute change, the schedule again, and will be here. He'll join us in about ten minutes. And before handing over to the chair of the first session, I just wanted to spend one minute just to tell you what's happening here and to perhaps give just a tiny bit of focus to the afternoon's events. Uh, the LSE uh, Policy Engagement Network created the Future Britain campaign to try and help position the process for constitutional change. And we believed that the process was absolutely crucial if you're going to build accountability and trust. And process is one of those areas which is, um, exciting though it is, has been sadly lacking in, in the dialogue internationally. And what we've got for you this afternoon is an extraordinary range of talent, people who can put focus in this important area and look to ways that we as a nation can collaboratively build a constitutional change. It's not going to be easy. It's not a precedent by any means internationally, as you'll hear from our eminent international speakers. But what we do have here is a challenge which I regard as, as possibly the most exciting of this generation. I'll say no more at this point, but uh, what I'd like to do is hand over uh, to our first chair, uh, Professor Ross Cranston, QC, uh, former Solicitor General, uh, Centennial Professor of Law at the LSE, um, Ross, I, I give you the uh, unenviable task of dealing with the first session. Thank you. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Simon. Um, we have these changes in the program, so uh, we, we just have to live with that. But we're very fortunate that so far we've got two eminent parliamentarians. Michael Wills is the Minister for Constitutional Renewal, and you will see from the biographies that you were given that he was elected in 1997. Um, he has held ministerial offices in the Home Office and various other places. Uh, but I have to tell you that before he entered Parliament in 1997, he had a very distinguished career uh, outside Parliament, uh, in the media. And also he's a novelist, although he does publish under a pseudonym and that student is not J.K. Rowling, I hasten to add. <laughs> um, 
but uh, he is a very distinguished parliamentarian and he's got the charge of this uh, area. We've then, on my immediate right, got Nick Clegg, who is the Liberal Democrat uh, spokesperson for this area. Uh, Nick spent a number of years in the European Parliament before he was elected in 2005. Uh, you will often hear Nick on the radio and you will see him quoted in the media. So he's established his um, position uh, very rapidly, uh, having been elected just over two years ago. Now, the idea is that we'll be joined by Dominic in a moment. Um, but to start off, Michael's going to uh, give a short speech about the government's uh, policy in this area. And then Nick and Dominic are going to respond. So to start with, I invite Michael Wills to uh, address you. Thanks. Um, Thank you, thank you very much, Ross. Um, I start with the usual apologies. First of all, that I'm not Jack Straw. As you've heard, he can't be here. He's very sorry, and he asked me to send his apologies to you. As you think we'll all be aware, this is the time of the parliamentary session where our unique constitutional arrangements become even more uh, unique uh, and unpredictable, and, and he is very sorry he couldn't be here. It's, a, it's an important start of the process for us, and we were very much hoping to come here uh, and talk to you about what we intend to happen over the next few months. Um, and for the same reason, really, I apologise that you're not now going to receive a meaty keynote speech uh, from me. Uh, really, just a few pointers about what we're trying to do uh, to allow time, we hope, for some discussion uh, before I'm afraid I have to go back to the House of Commons to uh, participate in the rest of the business today. Um, I just want to say a couple of things about the background to the Green Paper, the Governance of Britain. I think it's important, as many of you will know, to realise how deeply seated this is in a history of the two key ministers taking this forward. Uh, Jack Straw has been passionately interested in this for most of his political career. As many of you will know, uh, nearly 15 years ago, he actually wrote about the need uh, to do exactly what we're now planning to do, uh, outlined in the Governance of Britain document, which is to surrender or limit the power of the executive in all the ways that we've outlined and I hope we'll discuss later. So he has a long history and commitment to this cause. Gordon Brown, similarly, as long ago as 1992, gave his first uh, lecture to Charter 88 about the need for a new constitutional settlement, uh, a theme he's returned to frequently over the last 15 years. In 1997, he gave the Spectator Lecture on National Identity and the importance of British establishing and affirming a British national identity uh, that was inclusive of everyone in these islands. Uh, and again, it's a theme that he's returned to over and over again. So these two key themes of constitutional renewal uh, and, and the development and uh, affirmation of our national identity are themes that you can see certainly in the two principal players uh, on our side of the House. And it's very important to see that what we're proposing has very deep roots in our recent history as a party. Now, as Simon said, one of the most important points that we want to get across over the coming months is that the process by which we bring forward the measures in the Green Paper is almost as important as the outcomes. Uh, the Green Paper uh, will, consists, as you, those of you who have read it will know, uh, of essentially two parts. A very immediate uh, program of legislative action, which essentially is about surrendering and limiting uh, the powers of the executive. Uh, this is going to be uh, encapsulated in a bill, probably a monster constitutional reform bill, that we will bring forward in the next parliamentary session. 
uh, in the coming months. Now, we have undertaken to consult widely on that, and we will do so. But the second part of the Green Paper deals with, with a, a, a perhaps a more generally uh, far-ranging discussion about, first of all, the formulation about a British statement of values, uh, secondly, about uh, how we encapsulate a British Bill of Rights and Duties, and thirdly, moving on beyond that to a discussion about the need or not the need for a written constitution. Now, throughout this, but particularly in the uh, second part of the programme, we are going to be looking for new ways of engaging everybody in this discussion. Uh, there are lots of ideas out there, and at the moment our view is very clearly that we want to try as many of them as we can. We do not feel we have a monopoly of wisdom about how to do this. Uh, we have tried as a government for over the last 10 years to consult very widely, and we have learned a lot of lessons from those processes, and we think that we need to continue uh, to develop new methods of doing that. So one of the values for me, and I hope we'll have time to discuss this, will be today... Uh, to hear from you how you think we should take that process of consultation forward. And I'm certainly looking forward to what Simon and his team are going to do to develop these ideas uh, in the weeks and months uh, ahead. The um, second point that I want to just raise with you is that the constitutional reforms that we're now embarked upon are, on, in one sense, a continuation of what we've done already. Uh, over the last 10 years, and particularly in the early years of this government, we embarked upon what, what uh, Vernon Bogdanor, I think, has described as a quiet revolution. We brought forward uh, very wide-ranging measures of constitutional reform in terms of devolution, the Human Rights Act, and so on, all of which have been trying uh, to reform and renew uh, our democratic institutions in, di in different ways uh, and, and our constitutional arrangements. But we now believe that we're moving beyond that to something much more complicated and challenging, which is to affect not only structural change, and some of what we're proposing is structural and institutional change, but also to cultural change. We're providing the people of this country with certain tools with which they can engage more vigorously democratically, and I've mentioned some of them, freedom of information, for example, is another one. But we now need to see what we can do as a government to foster that spirit of civic engagement. Um, it's a very complicated task. We don't pretend to have the answers at all. Uh, and it is something, again, that we would very much welcome views on. There are elements of more direct democracy in what we're proposing, and I'd be happy to discuss them with you. But the third point that I want to make very clear in all this, that it is our view that while we are very open to discussion, we are very keen to pilot and develop new ways of doing things, there are certain areas which, we, for us, we believe should be non-negotiable. Uh, perhaps the most fundamental is that we have a system of representative democracy in this country and we believe that it should stay at the heart of all our constitutional arrangements. So that when we talk about direct democracy, we are not talking about replacing or supplanting our system of representative democracy at all. And we will be very wary of anything uh, which looks like uh, the first steps, however tentative, towards a plebiscitary democracy. Uh, and I think it's important that we're clear about that from the start. What we're talking about are measures of direct democracy which augment and enhance that. So in virtually every area where we're talking about, the methods that we're talking about of consultation and everything else, we envisage it ending up in Parliament to decide. Uh, and it's important as we go forward that there, there is no mistaking that. Um, 
It's very important to the Prime Minister, and he's spoken about this many times, that in meeting the challenges we face as a country, and they are difficult and complex and many of them are unprecedented, we need to try and develop together a stronger sense of national purpose. Uh, he's spoken a lot about it. I don't want to say a lot about it today, although I'm very happy to answer questions on it. Um, that is really the origin of our belief that we should have a British statement of values. And the final point that I want to make is that we do not believe that this can be imposed from us, from the centre, from government. This is something that has to emerge uh, from the people themselves. Uh, the state can confer citizenship, but it can have no role in creating identity. People, that is something that people do for themselves. Now, we have a role uh, to foster debate. We have a role in in promoting and encouraging people to become engaged uh, with their society and with their democracy. But in the end, these elements of it have to come from the people themselves. And I just want to stress in concluding one thing. Uh, when the Prime Minister made a statement uh, to the House of Commons two weeks ago, he stressed, and I want to stress again today, that what we have set out is not a final blueprint. It is a route map, and it is a route map that we can only travel through with your help, and I look forward to doing that in the months ahead. Thank you very much. Well, thanks very much, Michael. I'll now invite Nick Clegg uh, to respond. I, I reappear from behind the screen. Um, Ross, thank you very much uh, for inviting me and chairing the session. And Simon, um, I uh, thank you very much, I think, on behalf of everyone who's involved for uh, organising this at such, such short notice with such recalcitrant, idiosyncratic uh, participants who keep changing their plans every, every minute right up to the last minute. Um, uh, but what you're doing here, it seems to me, here in the, in, in L in the LSE um, is part and parcel of what I hope will be an ever wider uh, discussion on issues which are of vital importance to uh, the the life of the nation, and which at times can appear to be somewhat obscure, esoteric um, preoccupations of those in the Westminster and political beltway. And I think these initiatives uh, that you are taking and others it, to try and gain a wider audience for these vital issues uh, is, of course, extraordinarily welcome. I should just, for protocol reasons as much as anything else, uh, uh, Ross, just um, introduce a little correction to the way you introduced me. I don't actually speak on these issues for my party, though I take a keen interest in them. I'm the Home Affairs spokesman for my party, where a lot of these issues, of course, impinge on what I do. But there are others bigger and better than me who, I think, formally speak uh, on these issues for my party. But I think I speak with their blessing, put it that way. Um, I want to make just three or four points. First point is, is this, that um, it is, of course... For someone who um, is a member of a party uh, for whom political reform is the very sort of lifeblood of what we're about, if you like, in, in politics and always have been, uh, it is, of course, enormously exciting uh, to see um, that there is uh, an opening of the door to a serious uh, national conversation about how we wish to reorganise our political uh, institutions. Uh, it is a particular... Uh, welcome, given the some sort of deafening indifference that seemed to emanate from Number 10 for a very long time until very recently on these issues. Notwithstanding, I should acknowledge the important early uh, steps on, on, um, on uh, Scottish and Welsh devolution and, of course, uh, the Human Rights um, Act. So it's a very exciting time 
for us, and we, we as, a, as, a, as a party, we are very keen to engage in this with, with real uh, sincerity and earnestness to try and um, capitalise, if you like, on this opening, on, on this re, uh, re-emergence of interest in uh, constitutional, institutional uh, issues, which sometimes, I have to say, for Liberal Democrats, felt like a uh, rather odd um, sort of cottage industry, which we, which we alone were interested in and nobody else was. So that, we, we welcome that. However... And you would expect this, wouldn't you? But I I want to try and flesh this out a bit. There are very serious questions that we feel should be answered as soon as possible about why the whether the proposals floated in the Green Paper go far enough. And I don't don't pose that question in a sort of churlish way to say, our hurdle's up here and you failed it, and therefore, no, 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 you're not not doing well enough. That That would be churlish, that would be silly. It's meant... Much more, with much greater seriousness of purpose, which is this, that the stated aim of many of these reforms is to restore trust in politics, rebalance the relationship between the people and those who they elect to represent them, and to significantly readjust the relationship and the power relationship between the legislative and the executive. Those are the stated aims of these reforms. Some of them undoubtedly will go some way towards those objectives, um, removing the royal prerogative, uh, taking power away from the executive on um, public appointments, uh, making things like the Intelligence and Security Committee um, answerable to Parliament rather than to the Prime Minister, lowering the age of, uh, of the voting. All of these things are important steps. But my worry is that the more we will look at these ideas over the next few months the more I fear that we will come back to the conclusion that whilst they are important incremental innovations in and of themselves, and perfectly welcome in that, uh, in that regard, they don't tackle the fundamental lopsided nature of executive dominance of our legislature and um, uh, a political system where large, large parts, parts, swathes of the electorate feel disenfranchised from the electoral process. And of course, again, you would expect this, but I want to try and spell it out as, as, as cogently and honestly as I can. We genuinely feel that unless one is prepared to look at the issue of the electoral system by which government is elected into office in the first place, the risk in the long run is that many of these innovations will seem to be important, as I say, but not sufficient in themselves to really make a meaningful, lasting impact on the imbalances which I think everybody in this room accepts exist in our electoral system. Take, for instance, the relationship between the executive and the legislature. Giving, as I think is floated in the Green Paper, um, the power to dissolve Parliament, call an election to the House, to, to, to Parliament rather than the executive, sounds great, but it's in danger of being meaningless as long as the executive of the day has such a whopping majority that it, in effect, decides when Parliament is um, dissolved. Lowering the age of, um, uh, to vote, of course, will give access to that right to many people who don't presently have it, but doesn't answer the enormous dilemma that there are huge numbers, hundreds of constituencies in this country where where voters feel effectively disenfranchised because they know that their own political preferences make absolutely no, have no effect on the outcome whatsoever. We know that the current government has a very substantial majority in the House of Commons 
on the back of what it is, I think, about 23% of the total eligible vote of the British electorate. I just pose the question, how do you fundamentally change the relationship of power between the executive and the legislature if you perpetuate a system in which the executive has such complete dominance in the composition of the legislature? And I personally just don't think you can bypass that, escape it anyway, until you deal with that head-on. My concern is that many of these innovations, welcome while they, whilst they will be, will still, still leave that lopsided edifice in place at the very heart of our, of our constitution. So, Michael, please, well done, but go further and go faster. Second point, um, Michael rightly and encouragingly said that the process by which we deliberate on these issues is as important at this stage, at least, as the specific issues being floated by the government and others. I couldn't um, agree more. My own view, and that of my party, is that the process is not just a technical issue, it's not just a, uh, an instrumental, mechanical issue. It, is a re- it has to act as a reflection of who you think owns our political system and our constitution, or rather the lack of it. If you believe that, it is, that the Constitution is owned by the people, not by the political class, then I think you inescapably have to conclude that you must have a mechanism by which representatives of the people, totally independent of the formal party political process, have an active role in shaping the uh, ideas um, uh, which will uh, reorganise our Constitution. If, however, you believe that the Constitution is the possession of the political class, then clearly you keep it, you keep it within Westminster, you keep it within the ambit of the political parties. I firmly believe the former, and I believe it not only out of principle, but also for pragmatic reasons. It seems to me that since we all wish to talk about, we also wish to, all wish to make progress on constitutional issues without sullying um, that process by allowing party politics to enter unduly and that we want I think as a a collective political class in Westminster but as a nation for that process to be inclusive and in which people feel they have a stake and in which they can get as animated and excited as we do then it seems to me one has to try and think hard about the kind of innovations that have been used elsewhere in Canada, the Citizens Forum Assembly was was an important uh, precedent in Scotland. We know the Constitutional Convention there played an important role in bringing people in from uh, outside the political community itself. So I think the process is important, as Michael says, but it is important because it is the only way in which we can try and provide a popular imprint on the outcome and not allow these innovations to to appear to be the playthings of of the political class um, itself. Final um, point is really just special pleading, really, on two specific points. My own view, and I say this, of course, I suppose, through the slightly distorted lens of being a uh, home affairs spokesperson, but uh, that I think there has been a chronic misuse of legislation in recent years, in which legislation has been used in a hyperactive manner to send messages to the electorate rather than actually to pass laws of the land that are necessary for the conduct of public policy. There can be no other explanation for why we've had, what is it, 25 criminal justice bills 
over the last 10 years. Why, with sort of breathless hyperactivity, we've had, what, over 3,000 new criminal offences put onto the statute book um, since 1997. That's two new criminal offences on average for every day that Parliament has sat since 1997. Now, I think that demeans Parliament, but I think it, it, it seriously corrodes public trust in the legislative process itself. So my special pleading is that when we talk about these things, let's make sure that we build in mechanisms which put a real restraint on frivolous, knee-jerk, media-oriented legislative initiative-itis and try and return the lawmaking process to the uh, purposes for which it was intended. And the second bit of special pleading is, is this. Along with the lopsided nature of the Constitution that I've referred to and Michael's referred to earlier, it seems to me a parallel but not unrelated problem in England is the over-centralisation of, of government. We'll be familiar with, I hope, the Liberal Democrat critique of a Whitehall-centric form of governance that is by far the most over-centralised form of governance anywhere that I know of any, almost any mature Western democracy. Even the French um, uh, uh, Republican uh, system, uh, presidential system, is now a model of decentralisation compared to much of what English government is now. And I just, again, my special pleading is for, is for a major strand of thinking to be devoted to try and, making the, try and make the rhetoric of devolution, of the politics of empowerment, of decentralisation, of the dispersal of power amongst our local communities and local authorities, a um, reality. Because I feel if we don't couple together the sort of Westminster-based issues that we've talked about and have been floated in the Green Paper with a wider reflection on the relationship between local government and central government, we will be missing a trick. And again, we might topple into the mistake of only looking at part of the canvas and not the whole picture itself. Thank you very much. Nick, thanks very much, and apologies for introducing you incorrectly. I assume, though, that everything you said was pucker uh, from the point of view of the Liberal Democrats. I should have said, to declare my interest, that when I went into the House of Commons in 1997, one of my close friends was uh, Michael Wills. Uh, Jack Straw's got a lovely saying that your enemies are often behind you, and the corollary of that is you often make friendships on the other side of the House. Certainly that was the case with Dominic Grieve, our next speaker, um, because we both came in at the same time. We all came in in 97. Um, and uh, Dominic and I worked on a number of things together. He's now the Shadow Attorney General. He also <coughs> speaks on home affairs uh, for the Conservative Party, and he's going to talk to us for about 10 minutes. Thanks, Dominic. Well, th thank you very much for the invitation to be here this afternoon. I was delighted when I heard uh, what was being done at the LSE to promote debate. Uh, and my one regret is that my original intention, which was to stay here for the rest of the afternoon, is going to be cut short by the corporate manslaughter bill, which will require my attendance back in the Commons in about half an hour's time. Now, some of you may know I've spent quite a lot of the last year, perhaps rather longer in my capacity as Shadow Attorney General, being quite interested in constitutional structures. Uh, I spent uh, a bit of the last year dealing with the setting up of the Conservative Bill of Rights Commission, uh, which is uh, working on the creation of a Bill of Rights compatible with the European Convention, 
but uh, adding to uh, the rights that we already have. I've also been involved in quite a lot of the events which have surrounded some of the major constitutional or semi-constitutional spats we've had in the House of Commons. And it was rather cheering in the course of the last year to notice that some of the seminars I've been attending, uh, some of Gordon Brown's staff sort of started to appear and sit at the back. Um, So it didn't come as a total surprise when the Green Paper came out to find that there was a lot in it which uh, rung bells and very happy bells for me. Um, I hope you'll forgive me, and I hope Michael will forgive me particularly, if I I just sound a a very slight note of caution. I'm an old-fashioned conservative. I happen to believe, rather, love the British Constitution, not as some static entity, but that in its rather ramshackle and idiosyncratic way, it's historically been pretty good at delivering protection to the citizen and good quality governance free of corruption uh, and free of uh, the exercise of arbitrary state power. And I want that to continue. And when I look at what's happened in the last 10 years, I do have anxieties. I sort of noted them down as three headings on paper which troubled me and which I felt needed to be addressed. The first, and I think there may be some common ground between us, is the decline in the role of Parliament. Certainly Parliament has been more marginalised, I think, in the last 10 years than in a long period before. In the name of modernisation, many of our practices, which might have enabled us to stand up to the executive, have disappeared. Uh, Governmental conventions have also been very frequently disregarded. And under pressure of events, once conventions are abandoned, the power of government to centralise becomes almost unbridled, because as Sir Thomas More so rightly said of King Henry VIII, it were good that no man should tell him of the full extent of his power, because if they did, he might begin to use it. And that, I think, is to an extent what has happened here in Britain, because conventions, which are things which I regard very highly, because I think there's nothing better than a system where people don't do certain things, not because the law tells them they shouldn't do it or they can't do it, but because a democratic inhibition and respect for convention tells them they shouldn't do it, operates. But all too often we seem to have seen that disappear. One of the proposals, for example, that we're about to look at in in the Green Paper is about a civil service act. Yes, I think we do need a civil service act very badly. But I think for many years we decided we didn't need a civil service act because it seemed to be working so reasonably well without it. And it's only really under the impact of the politicisation of the civil service which has caused so much anxiety recently, that it now becomes a live issue, and along with it, of course, demands for changes and putting the statutory of the ministerial code on a statutory basis. The third and most important thing, I suspect, of the three for me, is that under the pressures of globalisation, rapid change in society, mass migration, and terrorism, or the fear of terrorism, we seem to be sliding inexorably towards a suggestion by government that we all have to accept a more controlled and authoritarian model of the society in which we live, uh, lest otherwise we disintegrate into some form of anarchy and violence. That has taken up an enormous amount of my time, and it's been noteworthy, it seems to me, that some of the protections which we might have expected to check this, such as the Human Rights Act incorporating the ECHR, often don't seem to me to have been particularly effective in that respect, although I dare say things might have been much worse if uh, they were not there. So 
I have anxieties about the future and therefore if the government wishes to come forward and engage in a national debate about how we can put together a structure that may make people feel more comfortable, share common values and feel that our country has a shared future around those values, I for one am only too happy uh, to participate in that process. Particularly if we can maintain, not I think, which is the essential thing, not I think robust debate, but can try and maintain the debate in a way which doesn't, as so often happens, I have to say, in politics, suggest that it's just one party trying to outflank another electorally for some short-term advantage. Can I then just turn to some of the principal points that have been made in the Green Paper? It's not possible for me to comment at great length on all of it, but just to highlight one or two areas, a great deal of what's in the Green Paper seems to me to merit serious consideration. Some of the things, I think, I hope this isn't being unkind to the government, but sometimes I think there may be a certain simplicity in some of the proposals. If you take the changes to the royal prerogative as an example, as a global total, there are some things in the changes to the royal prerogative I can embrace immediately. The opportunity of the Speaker to recall Parliament without the intervention of the government, for example. Um, the... Um, some of them, I think, may be more symbolic than real, oddly enough. I mean, Parliament voting before troops are committed abroad, I have to say, actually, I think this is an area where Parliament does still hold a considerable measure of control because few governments could make such a commitment without parliamentary support. Others may be rather controversial. I was frankly very puzzled about the proposal that the royal prerogative should be ended over dissolution of Parliament because I wonder if people have really thought of some of the implications in terms of having a government which loses a vote of no confidence and then Parliament refuses to dissolve itself, uh, as one example. Or, I have to say, I think there are one or two circumstances where the combined tyranny of executive and Parliament may only be ended in a real national emergency by the Queen exercising it as a residual prerogative right to call a general election. These are some of the detailed things that I think we really do need we must avoid losing sight of. Another example within my area, the role of the Attorney General, very controversial at the moment. I've spoken on this before, but I'd simply like to highlight the fact that I believe myself that in some areas, both of governmental advice, but also in terms of the supervision of the Crown Prosecution Service, the role of politics cannot be entirely removed from the process. You've got to try to remove party political advantage, but I think the idea that it can be depoliticized may be a fantasy, and if we lose parliamentary accountability, we will end up, in fact, with government in-house lawyers accountable to no one, still providing exactly the same advice and under the same influence of the executive as some people have complained about up to now. Finally, can I just turn to the Bill of Rights? The Bill of Rights is in many ways, I think, one of the centrepieces of the government's proposal. And as I said to you, my own view is that a lot of it mirrors some of the things I've been saying over the last 12 months. Our own commission wishes to try and evolve a British Bill of Rights, which will, I think, more than anything else, actually make rights and civil liberties something attractive to a broad swathe of the population who I'm afraid currently view the operation of the Human Rights Act all too often as being the rights which go to somebody else and are not relevant to them. That is a major issue of national debate, which if we can progress sensibly, I think could be to our common advantage. And in doing that, we will have to tackle difficult issues. If I may just say as an example, 
there was an announcement today, slightly peripheral to the Bill of Rights, but I think it's relevant, about whether the police should have access to private information coming from cameras designed to deal with congestion charging. This is a very important topic, and I have no difficulty with it. But I do rather regret, if the leaks are correct, that the government, rather than coming and confronting the ethical dilemma head-on, apparently chose to try to slip it in when nobody noticed. And if I may make a plea to Michael and to Jack Straw, that if we want to have this debate, one of the things we're going to have to do is to make sure that that debate is open and that governments are honest about the ethical challenges that face them. Because unless we are, we are constantly going to fail our public, who will simply say the same old politicians up to yet another minuet. So I'm pleased that we're going to have this debate. My own party looks forward to participating in it. If we can, as I say, remove some of the posturing elements which always go with politics, and of which I'm probably as guilty as any, I think we will make good progress. Uh, But we should beware of blanket solutions and always keep in mind... Although I have many things I find wrong in this country, there are also a lot of things which actually our forebears got pretty much right. Thank you very much. Right. Well, later on this afternoon, you're going to have an opportunity to have your say, but I've been instructed to uh, conduct a very short debate with the uh, three people on the platform, Uh, It was said I was supposed to do this in Jeremy Paxman style. Uh, I'm not capable of doing that. But let me just very quickly go through a number of points and ask for comments uh, from our three speakers. First of all, can I ask uh, Michael and then ask for comments from uh, Nick and Dominic, what's the big idea here? What's the underlying rationale? You spoke about national identity. Is that what it's all about? No, uh, look, I think the immediate task before all politicians at the moment, and not just at national level either, I mean this is something that local government has got to engage with as well sorry, is it it just is is that better, am I talking into it now? Talk to the audience, yes. I think think, um, the big task, and this has come out of I hope what I said, certainly what Nick said what Dominic has just said, is that we have to get people re-engaged with their political processes not our political processes as both Nick said and, and Dominic said I mean, it belongs to everybody, and for whatever reason, over a long period of time, it isn't just the last 10 years, it goes back 20 or 30 years, people have felt increasingly remote from the levers of power. Every MP knows that the cries of rage that they get from their constituents fundamentally are fueled by a sense of powerlessness, and they don't need it. They don't need to feel powerless, but we've got to make them realise that they have the levers of power, and they need to use them. Great, thanks. Dominic, let me ask you, do you think that there should be an underlying rationale of what uh, process of constitutional change we engage in? Well, it seems to me that we do need to identify the areas where we think that our current constitution, which does exist even though it's not written, is deficient, uh, both in terms of causing a democratic deficit or in terms of causing, uh, of not providing rallying areas around which people can identify I think if we do that, we need to have that discussion, because it is actually a values discussion. It's not a question of then intending the document to reflect values, although clearly values will go into whatever we produce. 
Um, but ultimately, if we create institutions, institutions then shape us. We've seen that throughout our history. So I do think we need to look at those <coughs> basics first. Um, but as I said, my, my final remarks a moment ago is we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. I think I, mean, I strongly agree with um, Michael's um, reference at the end of his answer to the sort of crisis of powerlessness. It seems to be one of the great dilemmas of contemporary politics that we are such powerful consumers but such weak citizens. Why is it that we live in an increasingly affluent society and yet people feel palpably less in control of their own lives and the decisions taken on their behalf? I've only been an MP for two and a half years or so, but if someone had asked me, in fact they did once ask me, I remember that's a school uh, pupil said, what, what do you actually do as an MP for Sheffield Hallam? And I thought about it for a while and I suddenly realised that the main thing I do and I don't know whether Michael and, and Dominic feel the same, is write letters and emails and make calls on behalf of people who are just not being listened to. I try and give voice to people who are voiceless. I'm not, sorry, that sounds saintly. I'm not, but what I mean is there's something wrong in the political system if people feel as powerless as that. So I do think it has to be about the overarching big idea of trying to give people back a sense of control. Great, thanks. Um, later on this afternoon, we're going to hear some distinguished uh, commentators from other countries and I'm just wondering whether you think we can learn from other countries in terms of the discussion that you hope us, uh, that, that you hope we're going to engage in. No, of, of course, uh, of course we can, and we will. We are intending to do so. Um, there's just one point I want to, to make in relation to what Dominic particularly has been saying, which I think is re related to this. When we approach uh, the question of our constitution, I, I agree with Dominic. You've got to be very careful how you do it. And the way that I've expressed it before is I think we need to approach it as a physician seeking to heal what needs healing rather than as an engineer seeking to draw up a blueprint and then kind of creating it all. And I think that's very important. I mean, I agree with Dominic. Our constitution, however much we all complain about it, however much it genuinely does need fixing, has served us pretty well. It is an organic thing. All constitutions are organic. They grow, they evolve, they respond. And that's what we're in the process of doing now. So I think we've got to be very careful. So in terms of learning from elsewhere, of course we will, but always as physicians, seeking to heal what needs healing, not as engineers. Thanks. Nick? Well, I'd, I'd say bring in the engineers. Um, I, I don't think it is necessarily time for sort of the nanosurgery of physicians. I th I th I, you know, I'll just re repeat my previous points. I think, I think we need to make sure that, given that we have this unique, <coughs> perhaps unique, um, constellation of circumstances where there seems to be genuine interest in these matters um, it, at the top of government obviously <coughs> my counsel would be take this as an opportunity to not tinker uh, if that's what physicians do, it's probably insulting to physicians but to also look at some of the more, the more fundamental structural changes that are needed to alter the imbalance of the relationships in our constitution Dominic I guess you would think in terms of organic change well, I certainly think in terms of organic change. Uh, I think that what I do think that we can go and look at is not only what is in other people's constitutions. I should explain. I mean, I'm half French, so I'm quite familiar with written constitutions or bodies of writing. Um, but also, I, and I think this is important, whether we can identify, though this is sometimes rather harder, why it is, for example, that in the United States, uh, the Bill of Rights as it exists there is seen as a defining document of their freedom and liberty, even when people get really worked up about interpretations by the courts they don't <coughs> like 
They don't actually talk normally about turning it on its head, but that in this country, rights culture appears to be rooted in a certain segment of the liberal intelligentsia. Uh, And in fact, if I open my mailbag, I tend to find lots of people who write complaining about it because they think, I've said this before, it's rights for the generally undeserving and of no relevance to them. Now, that's part of a democratic deficit that politicians have got to confront because unless you can sign people up on a much wider basis, uh, then this exercise will end up as yet another bit of academic discourse. Can I ask... Uh, and I guess it's the two opposition parties, really. What do you think is omitted from the paper? Now, Nick, I think you spoke about the electoral process as one key issue, but in terms of identifying, in terms of those three categories that the paper is divided into, is there any major area apart from that that you think, that you think is omitted? Sorry about that. What do you think is omitted from the Green Paper? I think I've probably had my go on that already. I mean, I, in the sense that I think, as I say, the electoral system is a major omission um, at this stage. Um, I think fleshing out what the, pro- the process by which this um, uh, this takes place, this debate takes place, uh, is not an omission. It's something which needs to be filled in. So I think Michael has invited ideas, which it, we, um, and my proposal or suggestion, obviously, is that it should be opened up to the non-political community as much as possible. And, and then, I, as I say, I, I do think this issue of the, <coughs> the over-centralisation of governance in England is, a, is, a, is, a, is an acutely is an acute one. And it's not just of constitutional interest. It has financial aspects. It has um, uh, aspects which touch every area of public policy. And I do, it, is, it does seem to me that needs to be rolled into the process as a whole. Um, without which the, the, the basic infrastructure of centralisation risks remaining intact. Great. Dominic? Well, uh, there are probably two things. Uh, and one, I'd like to emphasise, I'm rather forgiving of the government, and that is the relationship between national and local government. And I think probably if we're going to embark on this process, it might be wise to leave that to a second <laughs> stage rather than the first But it is one of the critical issues, certainly in England I accept it, although I myself believe that the regional structures that we've had imposed and which in fact are touched on in the course of this uh, are massively flawed and will never deliver that balance between local and national government that I think most people want. But I'm very conscious that this is a difficult area actually for all political parties in reality, although we all tend to like talking about it. But I think we've got to have that in the back of our mind when we think about what we're putting in place at the centre because at some point, I suspect, we're going to have to return to it. As for the rest, I'm actually quite congratulatory about the amount that the government's put in the green paper. I think it covers most of the areas of concern to me. The only point I would make is one always has a slightly sort of textual analysis approach to green papers. Uh, There are areas which seem to be more emphasised than others. Uh, And uh, some of the things which are emphasised are probably the simple things, and some of the things which are less emphasised are the more difficult. Um, The issue of the relationship of Parliament and the executive and the extent to which the executive will allow itself again to start being circumscribed by conventions or other restraints is, I think, absolutely central to whether faith in parliamentary democracy is going to be restored. Uh, There's a lot of good stuff in here, but the detail is not in here, whilst actually there's quite a lot of detail on some other things which I happen to think are probably of lesser importance. Michael, I'll ask you the same question, but I'll ask it 
in a different way because it was put to you the other day. This isn't radical enough. And I think the comparison was made with what was done between 97 and 2005 in terms of those big institutional changes. And I think you'll also ask the question, why no written constitution? Well, uh, can I just very quickly uh, address Dominic and Nick's omissions? Because actually they're, they're not omitted. I think what Nick, when Nick talks about electoral reform, what I think he'd like to see is a proposal to introduce electoral reform. What we have said is that we're going to review the systems of electoral uh, of election that are already in place, and we are committed to that, and we will do that. So that may be a chance, Nick, for you to have that discussion uh, when when that review comes out. In terms of over-centralisation, I mean, we have actually made it very clear that we think we do want to devolve power. Uh, we have talked frequently about double devolution. We have talked about giving... A, only yesterday there was a statement in the House about giving more powers to local authorities, and that is a continuing process. There are measures of direct democracy. The Department of Communities and Local Government has already announced some pilot measures for participatory budgeting, giving people direct power over how money is spent in their neighbourhood. These are very powerful steps forward, and I think that's in part answer to your, uh, your, your critique, uh, Ross, which is that we're not being radical enough. Uh, I think this is potentially, it's only a green paper, but it is potentially extremely radical, and not least for this reason. Strip out all the measures that we talk about, all the detailed measures, all these measures about surrendering the royal prerogative, about which people have talked and argued for years and years and years, and nothing has been done, and now it is going to get done. We mentioned the Civil Service Act. Uh, Dominic mentioned the Civil Service Act and the need for that. Actually, we are completing, or we will be completing, with this bill the final stage of the Northcott Trevelyan Act of 1854. I mean, this, this is radical stuff. But most importantly, leave all this aside. Leave all this aside. What the Prime Minister said is that this is not a blueprint. It's a route map. And we fully expect that this route map, we want, we hope, that this will go on beyond this Parliament, beyond my political lifetime, certainly. We want to start this process. Constitutions constantly change and constantly evolve. In many ways, often they do so in ways which are not scrutinised and not open to people. The whole of this process is designed to make that a participatory process in which everyone can join in. We want that to be a model for future constitutional change beyond this Parliament, even, dare I say it, beyond this government. Well, thanks very much, Michael. I have to draw it to a close. Dominic got his page a message that his business starts at 3.15, so he has to go. I know these two have to go as well. Very grateful to Michael for stepping into Jack Straw's shoes at short notice, and also grateful, of course, to Nick Clegg. So if you could thank the two of them very much.
Okay, we're going to move on to the, the next uh, bracket of speakers. And we're going to run this until about 3.30. But uh, both are going to speak for about five minutes or so. And then I might do my Jeremy Paxman act yet again. Um, and then we'll have some questions from the floor. Um, well, on my immediate left is uh, Shami Chakrabarti. Shami tells a lovely story about how I interviewed her when she came as a young person seeking admission to the LSE Law Department. And I think on one occasion she said, you admitted me. Well, of course, I didn't admit her. Shami's qualities are such that she admitted herself. But uh, she's very well known, of course, to you all. And we're very grateful that she's been able to come this afternoon to spend some time with us. On my right is the Right Honourable Jonathan Hunt, who is the High Commissioner here uh, from New Zealand. Um, New Zealand has gone through uh, quite considerable constitutional change in recent times. Uh, Jonathan was Speaker of the House, Father of the House in New Zealand, uh, and, as I say, is now here in London, and we're very grateful to him for coming along as well. I don't know whether you sorted up between yourselves who was going to speak first. Jonathan's going to speak first, so uh, let's have five minutes from Jonathan. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I want to give uh, as factual uh, an account as I can. I believe anyone who says they're unbiased is either rather cunning or rather stupid, so I'm not going to pretend I have, of course, bias. I was a Labour Party Member of Parliament for 39 years, a Cabinet Minister, and then Speaker for the last five years. New Zealand, of course, has the world's oldest democracy. In 1893, we gave all our women the vote. Our Indigenous people had had the vote from 1870, and in fact, I understand the first time you had one person, one vote in Great Britain was 1950. So we have a little bit of advance on you. We, after 1984, when the Lange government was elected, of which I was a minister, a royal commission was set up to look at New Zealand's constitutional situation and what could be done for the future. I think there was a feeling that in New Zealand, after election night, for a long period of time, you had a party in power that had pretty well absolute power for three years, and then they were either voted in or voted out. In 1985, the Royal Commission came down with a recommendation that there be a proportional system mixed with electorates, and they recommended, uh, they made a number of significant recommendations. In 1987, in a meeting at the Christchurch Town Hall, then Prime Minister David Longy promised a referendum, which was news to all of us on that night. But we eventually, after an election in 1990, when there was a change of government, we had a first referendum in 1992 on which of four different types of system we would adopt, whether we would have first-past-the-post, mixed-member, supplementary member or STV and mixed member MMP won convincingly and in the 1993 general election when I might say there was about an 82% poll so it was quite considerably representative we had to decide on whether we would continue with mixed member how we continue with single first past the post 
or mixed member. And mixed member won. And between 1993 and 1996, we had various select committees of the House in which I served. We travelled overseas to various countries, such as West Germany, such as Germany, Holland, Norway, Ireland. We even came to Great Britain too to have a look at the various systems that were, and, and in particular, countries like Germany which had a system, a similar system to what we had decided to have. And in 1996, the first MMP election was held. We've had four since then. The National Party was the leading minority party after the first election, the Labour Party, since that time. The system works. I was one of those who opposed it. Having seen it in operation, I now support it because I believe that fundamentally it provides value for every single person's vote in Parliament. On election day you have two votes, one for the electorate, and there are 70 of them, and then one for the party that you want to support, and provided you have 500 members and you register with the Electoral Commission, you can have a party. The all-important vote is, of course, the party vote. And that means that whereas... In Great Britain, in the last three elections, you had about 100 key marginal seats that you fought your election campaign on. In New Zealand, the hardest work goes into the safest seats, not the most marginal seats, because your aim is to get the highest possible vote for your particular party. And at the last election held in 2005, we had an 85% vote which was pretty high, not as high as it's been on occasion, but a substantially high vote. I'm in favour personally of making everybody do what they have to do in Australia, and that is go down to the, elect, uh, go down to the polling booth on election day and pick up a ballot paper. Do what you like with it, but make sure that you all participate. But I think we have got very much a participatory democracy in New Zealand. We have no upper house. But what we do have is that every bill that's introduced into Parliament has to be referred to a select committee of the House which consists of an equal number. It has to reflect the numbers in the House and there are no ministers on any committee and therefore it will have usually four or five government members, four or five opposition members. There's no casting vote and all people have one vote. And that means the government of the day, who usually have four out of eight, they have to get a fifth vote from another party in order for the bill to be reported back to the House, then to proceed through the House. Since 1996, no government, minority government, and they've all been minority governments, no minority government has ever lost an important vote. Both the National Party and the Labour Party have had what have been called confidence and supply agreements, which means that for the budget and for any confidence motion, there will be a majority cobbled together by virtue of various commitments and arrangements between, the various, between parties so that there will be a majority there. But elsewhere, every bill has to take its, has to take its chance 
on how many people support it. Now, I just want to say that this is a system that we evolved, and it's really only opposite to New Zealand. I like to think that along with Finland, we're always seen as two of the least corrupt countries in the world. We've never had a minister of the crown ever even accused of an illegal activity. And that's something for which we are very proud. (laughs) But I concede that one of the reasons is that with 4.1 million people, a lot of your actions can be very carefully scrutinised. I'm going to leave my introductory comments there. I'm very happy to answer any questions. I'd merely like to conclude by saying that our MMP system of government works. I believe it does deliver a much more participatory democracy than we had formerly under first-past-the-post. And one final point, we have acknowledged the part of our bicultural partner Māori in this whole process because once every five years after a census, we have a census every five years and then the boundaries are changed so that no electorate is more than 5% bigger than any other electorate, we have a, we have a situation whereby Māori, everyone has sent a letter through the post and the letter says, are you a Māori? If you answer yes, do you want to enrol on the Māori roll or the general roll? If you don't reply it is assumed that you're going to be put on the general roll. And interestingly, about half Māori in New Zealand respond that they want to go on the Māori roll, half on the general roll. It is in Māori hands as to whether or not they want to continue with Māori seats. It doesn't really matter in the sense that all seats are the same size and population. The definition of a Māori, I was the chairman of the select committee when we made that decision, And we decided to make it on a cultural basis. You're a Maori if you said you're one. And that meant there was then no argument. Jonathan, thanks very much. I think New Zealand was one of the first countries to abolish capital punishment as well. Right, Shami Chakrabarti, Director of Liberty. Thank you very much. It's always a privilege um, as an alumna, I think that is the Latin, but we probably will abandon that in the new modern British consensus. But as a graduate of the LSE and a a governor of the LSE, it's always great to be part of discussion here. It's also wonderful to be here with um, some solidarity and enthusiasm for this discussion, this process that is is future Britain. But I must be short, which I find easy, and I must be brief and therefore to some extent um, cut through some very wonderful consensus to, um, to express some bias and to perhaps sound a few cautionary notes uh, uh, after uh, what has been very, very much music to my ears. I am biased, as I've said. I'm biased in favour of uh, a democratic and constitutional settlement that protects rights and freedoms. And if there is going to be change, and there may well be a need for change, it must uh, be change um, that enhances rather than diminishes rights and freedoms. Now to speak plainly, we have just heard from, uh, with the exception of the the High Commissioner, in relation to the politicians we've heard from, we have heard pretty much the doves in their respective parties about these matters. We have not heard from Dr. Reid, 
thank goodness, we have not heard, <laughs> we have not heard from various people who are quite um, anti the rights and freedoms agenda in Dominic's wonderful party, and we've not, dare I say it, even heard from Lord Carlyle in Nick's party. So let's be clear that from my perspective, from where I sit as the director of the oldest rights and freedoms organisation in this country, there are hawks and doves everywhere. And in this very exciting and interesting and important and crucial debate about how to take our constitution forward in the 21st century, there are opportunities as well as threats. And I say that not to discourage this process because I support it, but I say it in order to inform the discussion that we say we're all all beginning. And I, I, I speak as someone who doesn't have the luxury, unfortunately, to debate constitutional matters in a vacuum or in the abstract, to sit with a blank sheet of paper and say, how should this debate be? What should the outcome be? I have to work with my colleagues at Liberty amidst the muck and bullets of the war on terror and the war on antisocial behaviour and every other war that the politicians throw at us when they're not talking in the abstract about how wonderful rights and freedoms and democratic values are. But unfortunately, that is a context in which we must all live and work. And so I just introduced that reality check and perhaps a few of the non-negotiables and the elephant traps that lie ahead that we must all together, uh, I, I hope, negotiate. I so agree with what was said before about the need to avoid top-down imposition of Um, of any new settlement. And that means I must do something rare, which is to disagree with one tiny part of Nick Clegg's remarks, which is when he said, go further faster. Go further by all means, whatever that means. But faster is not necessarily the answer to this. We have had lots of piecemeal constitutional reform over the last decade. Some of it, I think, may have been drafted on the back of a postage stamp. Some of it was actually, um, it's actually very good quality law in my view. But it matters not, to some extent, if there is no public education or ownership of things that we're calling uh, the constitution, uh, be it an organic constitution of our country. And that has been, to some extent, part of a bigger tragedy, that is the Human Rights Act, which in my view is an exquisite piece of British constitutional compromise, preserving parliamentary sovereignty on the one hand, but enhancing the protection of individual rights and freedoms on the other. But if if, 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 if it's smuggled in like a thief in the night and it has the word European buried anywhere in it. Surprise, surprise, there is not national consensus, let alone political consensus about its values. Um, so, that, so the process must not be top-down. Others are better qualified, like Pam Giddy and others, to talk about what the process should involve, but certainly not, Nick, faster. Because if you want this new constitution, whatever it ends up looking like, to last to last decades, let alone centuries, at least spend more than a few weeks or months on the process, I would argue. Um, I would also say that we have to have sufficient consensus of a cross-party and non-party type that we are not going to enter a phase of permanent constitutional revolution. Um, Revolution is a mixed blessing for people who care about rights and freedoms, Revolutions have, in human history, led to uh, eventual settlements and the protection of rights and freedoms, but there's a lot of blood on the carpet first. 
and we cannot begin a process where the new, the new chic accoutrement of any Prime Minister is their own constitutional settlement, right? So Tony Blair's Human Rights Act stroke devolution arrangements, etc., etc., followed by Gordon Brown's arrangements, followed by whatever follows. That is not the way to continue with the relatively stable democracy that we've had for so long, though clearly not as long as New Zealand. Um, to, to go to the, to the, to the, heart, of, uh, to the heart of what I'm going to say, because I'm running out of time, in the particular context of the threats from terrorism, real and perceived, because for these purposes both are important, it is very important that a debate about rights and freedoms does not become just one of citizens' rights. And that's why the discussion of Britishness and British values has to be looked at very carefully when it is going to be part of this discussion. We must not go back on the post-war settlement that looks at rights and freedoms as belonging to human beings first and citizens only additionally or secondly. We must not replace the post-war global democratic settlement of human rights with one of narrow citizens' rights that would allow, not Dominic, because he wouldn't do this, but his leader, for example, to deport people to places of torture because they're not citizens, cheered on by Dr. Reed and others in Michael Will's party. This is one of the biggest elephants in the human rights room at this point. And so any debate about British flag days and values must not be a cover for that kind of rights and freedom settlement. Secondly, the language of rights and duties... Is, is, is all very well as long as we articulate very clearly what we mean by rights and duties, rights and responsibilities. If, on the one hand, we mean that it is the duty of all of us to help uh, promote and defend the rights and freedoms of everyone, then who could object? If we mean, uh, as we do in the context of many qualified rights, to privacy, for example, to free speech and others, um, that there can be necessary and proportionate limitation on individual rights in order to protect other people or society, and that that is some reflection of duty, so be it. But if we mean something different, if we mean a simple contract model where rights are only left with good people or worthy people, or to put it more plainly still, you've abrogated your responsibility and so you lose your rights, then I'm afraid that that is not a notion of rights and duties or of rights at all that, that you can accept if you care about rights and freedoms, I would argue, even in democracy in this country. Um, and let's remember one of the reasons why the Human Rights Act it has in many quarters been unpopular. Yes, because um, the word European is mentioned in the schedule because it, uh, because it is to some extent incorporated the ECHR. Yes, because the politicians didn't own it. And so the narrative has been played out in the courts and in a courtroom deprived of legal aid. So it was superstars on the one hand and terror suspects on the other who had the benefit of going to court. But partly also because rights instruments... And there is now consensus, at least in theory across the parties, that we do need some kind of rights instrument that is at least as good as at the ECHR. Rights instruments do sometimes get in the way of government. And if they don't, they are not doing their job. 
if they make it too easy to announce that you're hanging and flogging people the day after a terrible event, if they make it too easy to deport people to places of torture, make it too easy to interfere with our speech and our privacy and so on, if they don't sometimes protect undeserving people, they are not part of democracy as I understand it, which is a democracy that is capable not of just existing for one minute or five years, but is capable of sustaining itself into the future. A democracy that protects also a small, non-negotiable bundle of rights and freedoms. No torture, privacy, free speech, and yes, free elections that are necessary to protect today's democracy from becoming tomorrow's mob rule. Thanks a lot. We've got about uh, eight minutes until we have our free cup of tea or whatever. Um, Jonathan obviously tells us about New Zealand, mainly about the electoral system, but also about the parliamentary process. Shami, of course, cautioned on process, its speed, and in terms of the substance relating to rights. But comments on any of those issues and the previous session as well? Down here. And then... Thank you very much for uh, the microphone. Could you identify yourself as well? And then I'll take you and you. Well, thank you very much for your very enlightening and interesting comments. Now, of course, you and the previous speakers talked about a lot about democratic deficit and about the need to engage the people. And what was I was struck that what was left out was was very important aspect, namely education. And I think that many people would agree that at least in Britain the formal education is anti-democratic. And despite all the talk about citizenship education and British values, this structure is discourages people from, from young people from participating. And it's clearly seen in the polls that it is the youngest groups that are most apathetic about politics. Therefore, my question to, to both of you is, how do you see 21st century education as fitting into the, the struggle for the constitutional reform? Okay, Thank you. Thanks very much. Chap here on the blue shirt. We'll take about three or four. Anyone else want to claim? Yes, thank you very much. My name is Stuart Maxwell. Um, firstly, thank you very much for uh, organising such a terrific gathering of people talking about a very important subject. Nice uh, for a change um, not to be waking up to hear uh, Shami giving John Humphreys a hard time. Um, could I, could I, could I, I didn't, didn't want... set the alarm this morning. <laughs> I, I, I did, I was saying now. Um, I, uh, I, I didn't want to talk about electoral reform because I've been uh, campaigning for it for the last 21 years. But um, I, I, I just wanted to raise, as a, the, the, the uh, gentleman from New Zealand ha, ha, has raised this issue... Um, the issue of uh, what we potentially may have um, as a proposal in this country um, as a variant on the German additional member system, uh, I, 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 as I say, I, I passionately believe in proportional representation, but I believe in electoral reform more. And I just feel that uh, where you have people topped up 
um, they really are not legitimate members. And if uh, the current government are completely committed to single-member constituencies, um, then the idea that you get additional members to make it proportionate really makes that um, illegitimate yeah. in many okay. ways. Thank you. Thanks very much. Over here. There are two over here. Uh, Mike Cushman, Department of Management here at London School of Economics. Shami talked about one elephant in a room. Let's talk about a rhinoceros instead. The rhinoceros that hasn't been talked about is the media. And we're talking about process for constitutional change. And this process will be mediated through media comment and through media reporting. And many of us have a degree of scepticism about whether we can get an open, friendly informative debate through the media that we need to develop difficult and possibly dangerous areas. Comes up in some ways. Um, Michael Wills talked, started by talking about a British statement of values. And this is a notion of British exceptionalism. There's something about values of Britain that's reinforced through a lot of media at a, on a constant rate, which leads us to problems about how do we regard a European convention because it's not a British convention, it's not part of us. We're talking about Britain as part of a universality of human rights, which the current media debate will not allow. And I do not know a way through. I'm sorry that our parliamentary colleagues are not here. And I just want to raise one other difficult issue. Um, Nick Clegg talked about powerful consumers versus powerless citizens. And one reason I would argue this is because Consumerism is individuated and citizenship is collectivised. And we have a problem of an attack systematically since, what, 79 on collective rights expressed through what is like trade unions that collective rights are always coercive and we do not know how to deal with the balance between individual rights and the necessity for collective rights which are coercive but the only way in which powerless can express views against the powerful. Thanks very much. And then the lady just along. Katie Swain from the Children's Rights Alliance for England. If I'd had the opportunity earlier this afternoon to say what we feel is missing from the Green Paper, I would have said that what's missing from the Bill of Rights proposals is children. We will be calling on the government to confirm that it will use this opportunity to incorporate into British law, into UK law, at least some of the rights principles and provisions of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child as has previously been recommended by the Joint Committee on Human Rights and of course the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child. I'd like to hear the views of the panel as to how they see children's rights fitting into this discussion. Thanks very much. Okay, Shami? Um, perhaps I'll do one answer and sweep up anything that I feel qualified to deal with and, um, and avoid electoral reform because I'm not qualified, though I do have some sympathy with the, with the point made about uh, trying to keep a constituency link. Um, last point first, um, Katie, um, I, of course, am uh, a great um, enthusiast for the Children's Rights Alliance and for children's rights, Essential, not just because, um, because I'm a mother and I love my child and I can just about remember what it was like to, to, to be a child, but because I also think that the way we treat children in this country is almost 
um, is, is almost a, a, a microcosm of our attitude to, to rights and freedoms. Um, there are these false stereotypes in circulation about human rights. On the one hand, we're told it's about nanny statism. On the other hand, we're told it's about anarchy. Um, and, and sometimes by the same commentator, sometimes in the same sentence, and it can't be about both, can it? Um, and it? And it seems to me that what human rights are about, um, as opposed to pre-war, uh, some, any kind of pre-war uh, notion of, uh, 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 of just liberty without, uh, without an idea of human rights, is they're about both respect and protection. Um, stemming from this concept of, of, of individual human dignity. And, 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 and the idea of our attitude to children is possibly the best way of articulating what human rights are about, which is that it can't be about unfettered freedom on the one hand, but it can't be about smothering over protectionism or, on the other hand, safety first, um, in a way that ultimately becomes counterprotective, not just to dignity, but to, safe, to, sa- to safety it's, itself. And we seem to have got ourselves into this weird trap um, in Britain, I think, where our children are essentially our chattels. Um, they are possessions. They may be precious possessions if they're my children, and they may be possessions that have gone wrong if they're your children and they're the hoodies from hell. Um, but we are a little hypocritical about our attitude to these precious possessions, which I, which I would rather we didn't regard as possessions, but we regarded as precious little human beings. And to be more specific about the role of children's rights in any future Bill of Rights, I do think there should be specific, explicit protection for children's rights, because frankly, um, I can't really think of many other things to put in um, uh, a a Bill of Rights that would build on the ECHR that aren't already there. And if these politicians from all parties are so sincere in their their suggestion that this is going to be Human Rights Act Plus and not Human Rights Act Minus, and that Shami is too cynical when she says you just want to deport foreigners, um, then I can't think of a better statement of good faith and goodwill than the idea that there will be explicit articulation in any new Bill of Rights for the rights of the child. The media, that, yeah, the media and education, and, um, and, yeah. and British and British values. I don't have a problem with the idea that I am British. I am sitting in an institution that is a famous uh, London institution, a famous <coughs> British institution. It also has very strong <coughs> historical resonances, both with Europe and with the globe. It is possible to have a notion of values and indeed of rights and freedoms that translates all of those arenas. Um, but it, but, 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 but you, uh, and frankly, the notion of human rights has a very old resonance in this country. You know, old-fashioned rights like don't lock people up without charge, ha-ha. Um, 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 that, that then, in the post-war era, for obvious reasons, become European. And frankly, I'm a product of the Commonwealth then resonate with the written constitutions and bills of rights of the new Commonwealth countries, not just New Zealand, that could teach Britain a thing or two. So it is, I think, possible to be, to be proud to be British, to sell that notion of nationhood to a population that doesn't mean it's xenophobic and racist and inward-looking. But I don't blame the media, I'm afraid. Uh, the media is not a monolith, there are hooks and doves in the, in the media as they are in every political party and everywhere else. I think ultimately it's about political leadership. 
A Prime Minister of this country can hold forth for as long as he likes and have the world media listening to him. If politicians are more consistent um, when they're talking in the abstract about uh, democracy and they're talking in the thick of debate about whatever it is, terrorism, asylum and so on, then I think the feral beast that is the media um, can, can be dealt with. But it's, not, it, it, it's too easy for all of us, I think, just to blame the media. And education, well, again, as I've said before, I think we need to start walking the walk in our attitude to, to children. Yes, you can do things with the curriculum. Yes, you can do things in the way you actually treat young people in schools. Uh, and, you know, our, our children are being taught to be prisoners before they've even left school. They're being subject to fingerprinting and other, uh, and other treatments that we used to think belonged in prisons. And then we expect them to be good citizens. We, um, we tell them that they must respect the, um, the uh, magistrates ASBO when they listen to prime ministers not respecting the highest courts in the land. Children, in my experience, have, have a very good bullshit detector and they know hypocrisy when they hear it. Thanks, Thank Very briefly, whatever. I want to say, uh, um, as far as the media is concerned, uh, there's only been uh, one newspaper in the city of Auckland which has a million of the four million uh, in New Zealand. Um, I don't think it's ever supported the party that I represented, but it hasn't stopped the vast majority of seats in that city being held by the party I represent. Um, I make no other comment. Um, <laughs> but as far as the question about... Uh, General political education is concerned. I believe that the elections are decided by those people who are least interested in politics, not most interested. Mm -hmm. And I take that as a fundamental rule I always have all my political life. Most people who are politically interested have made their minds up years ago and are not going to change, and that's fine. That's their business. But what a parliamentarian has to do facing an election, party has to do, is to get to those people whose vote is going to count on election day and now under the system that we have in New Zealand every vote counts equally and they have to put forward policies in areas where the people concerned are going to take a great deal of credence. In education for example 96% of all New Zealand schools are state schools very little private education in New Zealand and uh, I think that makes it a different system from yours we don't have what I can obviously still see in the United Kingdom, a class system. That's the thing that hits you as a New Zealander when you come to uh, Great Britain for the first time, but I don't want in any way to downgrade the many wonderful things that I've found in my two and a quarter years as High Commissioner in this very, very interesting country. You have got a great tradition of civil liberties, and of course we inherited quite a lot of them into our law too. We don't have a written constitution as such. We have a Bill of Rights. We have uh, an Electoral Act, which in order to change you have to have a 75% majority of those members in the House. But there's no clause that actually entrenches that as well. So it's a single entrenchment. But since 1956, no one has ever challenged any one of those provisions. A uh, final comment I'd make is that I think that the idea of having the widest possible debate on proposals like you've got in your green paper, I believe, is very, very important indeed. But I hope that you take it out, not just from the London School of Economics, 
but I hope that you go to some of those areas in Britain which are not as privileged and are not as fortunate and you try to engage them in that sort of conversation, you will find that they have got opinions that you have to respect, the human beings, and they've got probably sometimes just a little bit more wisdom than others. We're going to break now. You'll have an opportunity to ask questions later on. Shami mentioned the history. The cup of tea is up in the Shaw Library, George Bernard, on the sixth floor. So you either walk or you take the lift. And then we'll be back here just before four o'clock. Thanks very much. Uh, actually, can I um, uh, first can I just thank Ross, uh, Jonathan, and Shami for an excellent panel and the previous speakers too. Uh, can I? And uh, actually, there's been a change of venue for the tea and coffee. It's now over in the quad. The stewards will be able to help you over there. It's also signposted. Um, we should be back here by 4 o'clock, and by that, of course, I mean 4.05. Um, and uh, if speakers could briefly join us in the green room, just to debrief, and we have a wonderful afternoon coming up. Pam Giddy will be chairing... Uh, some extraordinary speakers. Uh, please stay around. I think you'll enjoy it immensely. Thank you very much.